Australia is a beautiful and wonderful place, but like so many other countries, it has a horrible history regarding the treatment of its native people. This episode felt to us like a hopeful look at how Aboriginal people are rediscovering their stories and applying them to the science of the future. Join us to find out from Willie and Duane how they're doing this specifically in the field of astronomy. Hello dear listeners, this is the Two Scientists crew coming to you today from the beautiful Sydney in Australia. We're very excited to be here, although a little bit jet lagged, as is probably not very surprising. Uh, our guests this evening are Dwayne Hamaka, hopefully you didn't massacre that, and Willie Stevens. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so I guess we're less two scientists today, but two scientists and honorary scientist. Yeah, sure. Call that. <laughs> Honorary culture man. Culture man, yeah, yeah. Okay, I like that. So, um, we usually start by getting people's backgrounds. So, if both of you could just give us a little bit of history as to how you ended up doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, when uh, I was growing up, I grew up in Newcastle most of my life, and I went for a job as a tour guide, Aboriginal tour guide in Sydney, uh, right next to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, suburbs called the Rocks. And about a year into that job, I had the manager from Sydney Observatory come up to me and ask if I wanted to do an Aboriginal astronomy tour, that they have this program up and going, up at the observatory, so I was like, yeah, I'll give it a go, and from there on, I just start, was hooked and yeah, started teaching, uh, doing the Dreamtime astronomy tour at the observatory, so yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so Dwayne, you're up next. So I'm from the US, as you can tell by the horrible Midwestern accent. I came to Australia in 2006. My background's in, in physics and astronomy, and I decided that I was interested in the crossroads of astronomy and culture. So I did a PhD in digital studies and got into Aboriginal astronomy and worked on that for many years. And at the time I was working at Sydney Observatory as a tour guide and they wanted to develop an, an Aboriginal astronomy tour, so we helped develop the Dreamtime Astronomy program, and that's how I met Willie. That's a beautiful story. It is. <laughs> and ever since then, we've been competitive, kicking each other's very competitive, kicking each other's asses in judo and jiu-jitsu. Well, I mean, it's been me kicking his ass, but you know, yeah, he does go back and dream sometimes. Nice. <laughs> so. Given that this is probably something that's not very familiar to a lot of listeners, I mean. Me included. I know very, very little about Aboriginal culture. So, Willie, you as... We looked you up and you are a Muruwari, is that right? Muruwari, yep. Okay. Can you explain what that actually means in terms of your kind of cultural heritage and what what the term means to you specifically? So, Muruwari in translation uh, means to fall with a fighting club. So, my people are fighters by uh, within our culture mm-hmm. um we're seldom but yeah we'll, when we have to fight we're really good at it so like uh, and it flows within my family as well so i've got um my mother uh who's an aboriginal artist she also did like a bit of um kickboxing back in the day um then she became a mother and settled <laughs> down from there um me i do brazilian jiu-jitsu and judo um i like to wrestle and throw people around that's like my type of fighting and uh, i've got some brothers and sisters brothers that like to uh punch my arms and legs whenever they can <laughs> i got two younger ones that love to do that um and two older ones that don't really do that <laughs> but um yeah sister okay. likes to argue a bit too so as you have a kind of personal origin story as far as learning about your background. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Because you didn't know about it when you were a kid, right? So um, the way my story goes is that uh, I was adopted as a child uh, mm-hmm. from birth. Right. And uh, the way adoption, my adoption worked was both parents or one of the parents had to be Aboriginal. Because right. my blood mother was Aboriginal, I had to be adopted into an Aboriginal family as well, or at okay. least one half of it was Aboriginal. So both mothers are Aboriginal, both dads are white. Perfect cover-up, never uh-huh. would have guessed. And um, <clears throat> one mother, my adopted mother, she was a Gamilaroi woman, 
and she grew up in Narrabah, and I learned a bit of culture from her and from my family, just little little bits from it, and I was always a bit fascinated by it uh, growing up, and when I was about 16, 17, uh, 17 I met my real mother, or blood mother, who is uh, very, very deep within her culture, and I've learned a lot from her. I learned a lot from uh, community members and family members uh, on my blood side and did my own research as well as I went, uh, did a lot of, uh, went to Canberra IATSIS library, the Aboriginal library down there and looked at old files and listened to voice recordings and yeah, it's pretty much how I learned a lot of uh, culture. So Duane, so was there a particular trigger for you to go into this field of research, given that most people, if you're thinking about astrophysics, I guess people have a particular image of what that scientist does. I got really interested in the study of archaeoastronomy when I was an undergrad doing physics. So explain what archaeoastrology is. Archaeoastronomy Astronomy, is... sorry, oh. oh my god. I'm going to blame oh. it on the beer and the <laughs> jet, lag. jet lag. Leave it in. Um, archaeoastronomy is, is the study of the astronomy of ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. Ethnoastronomy is the study of contemporary cultures. Mm -hmm. Now we collect collectively refer to them as cultural astronomy. Yep. But at the time I was interested in the, the astronomy of the ancient Mesopotamians. Mm -hmm. When I moved to Australia, I was still interested in doing that, but I was still doing astrophysics. Yep. And I made the decision to switch over to that area of astronomy and culture. And I, I didn't initially set out to do anything necessarily Aboriginal. I was curious about whatever I could get into a degree program, mm -hmm. study. You know, whether it's the Celtic studies at Sydney Uni and um, Egyptology at Macquarie and other places. But nobody seemed interested in this. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in Australia. I'd asked a couple people before about Aboriginal astronomy, and I didn't get very positive results. They just sort of brushed it off and said, "Oh, Aboriginal people don't have—they don't have any astronomy. They don't do that kind of stuff." I thought, "Oh, okay. Well, I got to looking around and found a man named Ray Norris, an academic at CSIRO, an astrophysicist, who had started doing this research on his own and found that there was a lot of astronomy there." So I talked to him, and we decided to do a you know PhD topic on that, and I started immersing myself as much as I could into learning about Aboriginal culture. And when I started looking at these oral traditions, I could see this tremendous wealth of science behind that, and that's what got me hooked. I thought, here I am in Australia, I love this country, why not spend my time focusing on Aboriginal cultures? Yeah, no, that sounds like a great idea. Um, so. To the people who might argue to you that this is more social science or history, how would you argue that this is genuine science? It's both. It is science and it is social science. As, as some of my colleagues, Clive Ruggles, uh, he's a professor of archaeoastronomy at University of Leicester in the UK. I believe, I'm trying to paraphrase exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of archaeoastronomy is a social science informed by the physical sciences. You can't separate the two. Yeah. Because you're looking at it within a cultural context, but it's completely based within, well, not completely based, but largely based within physical science. Mm -hmm. So there is a huge amount of science behind this. Whether you're looking at astrophysics, biology, geology, meteorology, all those things that tie in with that, or you're looking at the social components that tie in archaeology, anthropology, history, sociology, that's the great thing about this work is it ties in all of these areas. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't fit neatly with any one of those pigeonholes yep. and that does create various issues and problems because you can't be pigeonholed so easily Yeah. but it really truly is highly interdisciplinary mm -hmm. okay so Willie you actually work at the Sydney Observatory is that right uh, I did you did yes oh, I haven't worked anymore. there in a while oh but. I see okay but tell us about your work there anyway just because um, clearly you were kind of coaxed into the position right yeah so when I first started, uh, the program was made by Dwayne here. <laughs> uh, Got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, and um, he, so, because he had his the information and in the background already, so he um, made that uh, tour with what all the information he's done research he's done over the years with Ray Norris, I think, as well. And uh, so, the observatory also. Uh, created a couple of uh, ex 
exercises like um, a planet sphere to make you uh, just a cardboard piece of, uh, that you can use to look at what stars would be in the sky mm-hmm. or what time of the year. Uh, but implementing the Aboriginal cultural side into that. So you'd look at uh, the Southern Cross and it would have an Aboriginal name with it. So when I came into the program, um, I was quite fascinated and interested to keep learning more. And it was pretty much about half an hour of me teaching a story or, uh, or a few of them uh, relating to the stars. Any uh, people know them as dream time stories. I call them stories because that's just my culture. And yeah. Yep. Um, and that's uh, from there. After a half an hour talk, it would be a half an hour visit to a telescope where we'd uh, look at the stars and have a little yarn from <laughs> there on. Uh, and I would also have a, an astronomer guide because I don't have a background in astronomy. Uh-huh. Uh, I could pretty much only tell you what star is what, and that's more planets, not really stars. Yep. Uh, and that's as far as my knowledge goes when it comes to astronomy. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very good to have that astronomy guide with me while doing the cultural part of things. But to give people an idea of how old this actually is, most people will know about um, kind of a very European-centric view of astronomy and naming of the stars and so on so can you tell people exactly how far back this kind of culture and documentation you, goes I'll, I'll give you a good example of a, a story that was told in Gamilaroi country about uh, two crocodiles that lived in the sky and I'll tell you exactly where Gamilaroi is located is in New South Wales uh, right up top of New South Wales and it's one of the it's the second biggest country Aboriginal country in New South Wales. In Australia, crocodiles today are in the very top end of uh, of Australia, and so crocodiles aren't down south at all. And we the Gamilaroi people have a story that teaches them that there's two crocodiles that live in uh, this lake called Lake uh, Narran Lakes, and there's these. Uh, underwater caves that lead to water holes out there and Bayami, which is one uh, the creator spirit uh, had two wives and the two wives were getting water and the crocodile came up and grabbed them and took them under the water caves and took them to Narran Lakes. He went, followed them, got, got them back but that story is talking about two river monsters and when they, the way they use the, the, the astronomy part that comes in this story is that we looked at the Milky Way galaxy mm-hmm. and com- compared to like the Greek mythology, how they connect stars together yeah. to make uh, their patterns, we use the dark spaces within the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, okay. And we would trace with those dark spaces a couple of crocodiles crocodile pictures mm-hmm. it's a little bit hard to do but once you once you use your imagination quite well uh-huh. uh you see two crocodiles in the sky so how could aboriginal people that lived in new south wales for thousands of years known what a crocodile looked like and they clearly described it while using the dark spaces in the sky uh and this was a recorded story like uh hundred years ago yeah so, yep. so scientists had uh, or the uh, and uh, I'm not too sure what kind of background they would have done but uh, they had to think as to how long ago would there have been crocodiles or a species of crocodiles within mm-hmm. New South Wales area and they dated back to about 40,000 years ago there oh, was wow. a species of yeah. crocodile uh, that did live in the area so that's just having that little piece of evidence tells you how long that story, just that one story, has been told for. So it might have been morphed or changed where yeah. by a couple of words over yeah. thousands of years, but it's those crocodiles have always been in that story. Yeah. yeah. So this this is not something that's really documented. This really is a word of mouth thing, right? It, it was documented uh, quite a while ago, okay. but for thousands of years, yeah, it was yeah. just word of mouth and using your imagination uh, with the sky mm-hmm. helping you out. 
Uh, it, there may have been some, maybe some rock carvings within the landscape mm-hmm. as well, where you would get taken to and you'd probably have a look at the crocodiles on the ground and look at the crocodiles in the sky. I'm not too sure, but mm-hmm. um, you've got all these different tools within our culture that we use to help you um, pretty much learn from. Yeah. Okay. Let's switch back. So, Dwayne, one of the things I'm curious about is, um, obviously, we've been talking about the historical perspective, but is there a way that the research that's being done um, in the past could be applied to uh, what we're looking at in terms of science that's currently going on as far as astrophysics is concerned? It's a question that was asked several years ago, about four years ago to Mm. me, and I didn't really have an answer, but today I actually do. Mm -hmm. What I have learned from the communities, the elders, and from the old historical documents from communities and elders in the past, reveals a whole new plethora of knowledge that can be applied to modern astrophysics. There are stories that talk about bright stars appearing in the sky and disappearing. And they're you know relatively specific about where these occurred. Mm-hmm. These could help astronomers identify supernova remnants, for mm-hmm. example. There are stories that talk about the variability of stars. Antares, Aldebaran, and Betelgeuse, for example, are all described as getting brighter and fading a little bit cyclically over time in Aboriginal traditions. There are, you know, so those, I mean, we already know those stars are, are variable now, but in the 1840s and beyond that, Western astronomers didn't know those stars were variable up until then, yet those Aboriginal traditions had been long-standing talking about that, so they could have informed it back then. Uh, Learning from communities now about how to read the different ways in which stars twinkle can be used for weather prediction and seasonal change. Uh, The stories I talk about astronomy talk about animal behavior, talk about plant behavior, talk about seasonal change. This can inform aspects of animal behavior that you know western science is only just now starting to realize that aboriginal culture has known about for a long time yeah the, the idea of birds using uh fire to draw you know to set fire you know there's a burning stick the bird will drop it in a certain area to to cause a fire to drive out prey and then go oh, down and wow hit. that's something aboriginal stories have talked about for a long time but only in the last couple of years have scientists sort of figured this out mm-hmm. um, there's just so many examples like that across the board where it's not just astrophysics, but pretty much all of the sciences can be informed by these traditional knowledge systems. Uh, climate change is another good one, because when stars rise and set, denote particular seasonal change in behavior of plants and animals. Yep. And it's a really good synchronous clock. Well, now that the seasons are coming early, they're coming late, elders are saying it's, it's all out of whack now. It's happening two or three, four weeks early sometimes, sometimes it's later. You can see those changes of what's happening now and gauge those based on what the traditions say about those particular times of the year. Because mm-hmm. we know exactly where stars rise and set, when they're going to rise and set, you know, very accurately. So by looking at the behavior of the plants, animals, and the, the climate with respect to that, we can sort of see how far out it's been changed. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways that we can inform that by looking at Aboriginal traditions. Yeah. And I do want to note that I was helping out develop that Dreamtime Astronomy program, but Jeff White and Toner Stevenson were the two main people who, who, you know, we've been working together to get that going. So I want to make sure they get some credit for that because they were the ones who, who really drove that. Tom, I'm going to chill. Ask. So we're going to interrupt this podcast and just let people ask the questions that they want to. And our friend Jill is here with us today. Hello. Why do you call it Dreamtime? Just Dreamtime in general. Yeah. So. Dreamtime is like a term because of all the stories and all that kind of stuff. It kind of sounds like you're dreaming as well, but dreaming and dream time are quite different. So dream time is in the past, dreaming is present. Okay. So yeah, from what I've learned about it, it so we're talking about the dream time is like a creation period in the past. And the dreaming is sort of like a world that coexists with our. I, I feel weird saying this. It's like, a, it's like a world that coexists with our own, that you can connect with the ancestors and the spirits and things like that. It's sort of like that, yeah, right? Every, everyone's got uh, a different say as to what dream time is. So, yeah. I always give a short little example of it. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
I think it was a translation from an anthropologist in like 1920s or something like that who translated it to dreaming and that was the best he could do. That was in the central desert and now it's sort of taken on a collective term or something like that. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so David's too shy to get on the microphone because he d hates the sound of his own voice. Um, he says, much of traditional astronomy is based on Greek European interpretation. But another substantial difference could be the constellations look quite different down under. So how much of these differences uh, between European and Aboriginal-based astronomy is due to culture and how much is just due to geography? That's a really good question. There are several Greek constellations that have direct Aboriginal counterparts. The Aboriginal counterparts are much older. Mm -hmm. For example, Orion, the hunter, in some parts of Australia, there's a few different communities going from the central desert all the way to Wiradjuri country, where he's seen the same stars of Orion, even though it's upside down here, the same orientation, the same shape as a man. He's upside down here. And, and one of the students, one of my PhD students is working with uh, some elders, and they explain that um, it's Miami, and he was running, chasing a uh, kangaroo. He's hunting a kangaroo, and he tripped and fell. Uh -huh. That's why he's upside down. Oh, that's really cool. And in Central Desert, they saw him as upside down. And just so everybody knows, um, the scabbard, quote-unquote, of Orion's sword, that's not his scabbard. In the Greek traditions, <laughs> that was not his scabbard. It was cleaned up by the Victorians. Oh. That was definitely his man part. Okay. Um, so you've got some other things, uh, constellations that are very similar, but of course you've got many that are quite different. Mm -hmm. And as Whitley said, a lot of Aboriginal tr uh, cultures see the dark spaces between the stars. So you look at the Milky Way from the Southern Hemisphere, it's really bright, really beautiful, really high overhead. There's so many really prominent dark spaces. You see emus, you see serpents, you see kangaroos, you see um, crocodiles, all kinds of stuff. What else? Stingrays. Stingrays, yeah, that's right. And something you can see so well sometimes with all the light pollution. Oh yeah, this is true. I mean, so Jill's mentioned light pollution. And so again, is this something that we we see a difference between now and what's been documented in the past. I think one of the things we have to remember is that the south celestial pole of the Earth tilts towards the plane of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. So the southern skies are a lot brighter because we can see more of the Milky Way here. We see the Magellanic Clouds. Um, Australia is great because for astronomical observations, you need a place that is dry, dark, high, and cold. And Australia is perfect for that. Most of those things. So it's very dry. It's relatively dark once you get out of the city lights. And of course, back then there was no light pollution. Uh, you know, it's 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 a great spot to see the southern skies. And if you're out in the central desert on a clear night, it's, you almost get vertigo looking up. It's unreal. So you're gonna have a lot of different views of the sky here than you're gonna have from the northern hemisphere, where you just see a little bit of the Milky Way, and the the major part of it's very low on the horizon. I um, was just up in Gumbangi country just uh, last week. Gumbangi is about uh, six hours up the coast from Sydney. And I uh, was there for my mother's art exhibition. And we had my sister come up as well. And she brought uh, her daughter and son. And they live in Parramatta. Uh, or Westmead. Yeah, Parramatta. And uh, the daughter is about two years old pretty sure and the daughter when they went outside uh we were not really anywhere near any cities or any we were out next near the beach the daughter just looked up and goes what are those things up in the sky so she's not really seen the stars at all living in sydney mm -hmm. she goes out there where there's nothing no light pollution or barely any and yeah she's just captivated by it so, yeah. yeah that's a cool story um so I think there's, there are also questions that are tied just to um, historically how Aboriginal people have been treated by colonizers, which I think this is, this is a very sensitive subject, but it's coming up the world over for anywhere where um, you know, people have been undermined for long periods of time. So how difficult was it to convince people that this was legitimately astronomy? Um, to people who insisted that, well, these people could not possibly have known what they were doing, like... When I began doing this research back in 2008, it's 10 years now, 
almost exactly 10 years, 10 years next month. Um, a lot of comments I got back from people. Let me, let me step back a little bit further in time. In 2003, I came to Macquarie University as one of those really annoying American study abroad students. <laughs> Had the greatest time of my life. And that was when Mars was at its closest approach to the Earth. And I don't know how many squillions of years, whatever it was. Um, that's a term as an astronomer I use a lot. Squillions. Yes. Um, and I that remember being at the, uh, the local observatory on campus and one of the people who were, you know, sort of, you know, man in the telescope as it was, I asked her, I said, you know, what, what about aboriginal views of the sky? And her response just, it blew me away. I've never forgotten it. And she says, oh, they, did, they didn't really have much of anything there. They didn't have much. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess a lot of things happened. You know, a lot of people were killed off of colonization. She said, well, no, not all of them, unfortunately. Ouch. And that was my first experience asking somebody about Aboriginal astronomy. And that was in 2003. So in 2008, when I began doing this work, I went to a, a you know, I, I asked people what their thoughts on it were and usually got dismissed. In 2009, I went to a conference and I presented a couple of posters on Aboriginal astronomy. And the, the posters were set up in almost like cubicles. So I could actually stand on the other side of my poster behind it mm -hmm. and listen to what people were saying without them knowing it. So I decided to do a little bit of eavesdropping. I noticed something really curious. In general, there were two reactions to it. One was very positive. This is really neat and cool. And one was, this is a total waste of time. You're not going to find anything. The ones that said it was neat and cool were non-Australian accents. The ones that said it were a waste of time were Australian accents. But over the last 10 years, I've seen a huge shift, hopefully because of the work we've been doing in part, you know, mm -hmm. where people are now starting to recognize that there's a huge amount of knowledge here. That, you know, there's been a total shift. It's not happened overnight, and it's not been complete by any means. But there are a lot of people working in astronomy now who are more receptive to this, who are more understanding, who are more accepting. They shouldn't have to be accepting. They should recognize the evidence because there it is. Mm -hmm. um, but it, overall, the overall trend is that more people are, are, you know, willing to stop and shut up and listen for a few minutes. I've found that because of uh, my tour guiding background, I've uh, done a lot of cultural tours to uh, school groups. And I find, I found out that the, when I was in high school, uh, we didn't really learn that much of Aboriginal culture. We might have read two pages in a history book and we watched a movie called Rapid Proof Fence, uh -huh. which is a great movie. Yeah. Uh, and we had an Aboriginal guy come in to show us what a boomerang did. And... I asked a whole bunch of friends that went to different high schools and they said, oh, we didn't even get the Aboriginal person to come in. And I was oh, wow, I got more than you guys. And we all grew up in the same generation. And now, this generation, uh, all the kids are just, they just want to learn so much, so much of all this Aboriginal culture. And, but the parents, uh, they're teaching, the kids are going home and teaching their parents things. Uh, whether the parents want to know it or uh, they do, it's, yeah. But I found that I found that uh, the generation, my generation, and before, they don't really want to know that much, or they 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 don't see the point of it. Yeah. Or they're not curious. Uh, so that every generation after mine, it's just gotten better over time. So yeah, now I'm pretty pleased with it, but it can still get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just really depressing because clearly there is a lot that everybody could learn from uh, people who've survived for this long and survived in one of the most ridiculously harsh kind of set of conditions in the world. Like everybody jokes that, you know, most of Australia is out to kill you. Animal form is out to kill you. And that's not including, you know, the heat and the deserts and so on. Um, so the fact that these people have, they've, develop medicines and so on because I as I understand it they're also um, those kind of medicine and medical advances that people are finding interesting and looking into as well well it's it like it's all hidden within our stories every all of it is it's we we 
it goes down to, to the basic things. You, we might have a story unrelated to astronomy, but um, we might have a story about a water monster. And if you go swimming at night time, then that water monster is going to grab you and drag you down. You'd never see your family ever again. That's designed to scare the hell out of children. So they don't go swimming at night time or by themselves and stuff. So that's just something basic, basic human behavior to make sure don't do this, don't don't touch that, red means hot kind of stuff. Um, and it can be even more in-depth information. It could be a survival technique, like how to recycle the water within your body, you know, a bit of Bear grill style, drink your own urine kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? if, you really, if, you, if that's what you get out of the story, you know. But um, yeah, it's all hidden within our story. It's just got to unlock it. So I'm curious, I was reading an article about you and what was it? Um, oh gosh. Cosmos? Cosmos, yes. You wrote it, okay. So um, basically there you said one of the best things for you about working at the observatory was being able to share these stories and see people kind of light up and come back to you and say, oh my God, this is amazing, I never knew this. And I'm just curious because like science in pretty much any country, there's a big issue with... Um, underrepresented minorities and I'm wondering whether that's kind of sparked anything in one of the kids that are like oh yeah I, I want to learn more about astronomy or I want to go into science I had uh, I'll tell this funny story first there's my best mate's mother uh, she's got a, a young 10 year old I think mm -hmm. no sorry um, the seven year old and so he's in year one or kindergarten and they did an Aboriginal cultural thing, maybe a dance or so singing or something. Anyways, I go over to visit one weekend and she's telling me, like, can you have a talk with uh, young Jaden there? Uh, he wants to be um, uh, original. Original. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? He goes, yeah, you know, that's, that's what he said. He wants to be original. I'm, just, I'm happy to tell that to him, sure. She, she told me, like, oh, he wants to be Aboriginal, but... Uh, that's how he's saying it, original, because he just forgets to put the ab in front. And I just, we had a good chuckle over it, and I told him that uh, he goes, oh, yeah, I want to be uh, original. I was like, well, sorry, buddy, but you, you, you can't. But you could do all the most of the Aboriginal stuff with us. Um, but, uh, yeah, you have to be born Aboriginal. That's all. Well, that sucks. <laughs> His words. Um, so yes, I, fo I forgot what the question was. Though I got caught up in that story. Did you ever inspire anyone as a result of the the tours at the Sydney Observatory? I think I inspired Kirsten Banks. So yeah, she's a big big deal right now. Um, she was she's doing a she's finished, finished. her ast astrophysics degree. Um, so she's a Wadri woman. She's always been a proud woman, uh, Wadri woman her whole life. And uh, she was doing tour guides, the regular astronomy tours at City Observatory. And she learnt about the whole Dreamtime astronomy thing. And yeah, she randomly just said, Yeah, I'm Aboriginal too. And it's like, Really? So <laughs> hit it off from there. Um, she didn't know much. Because uh, I don't think her, par uh, uh, her parents knew much about where they're from, uh, but uh, got we got into it, and she pointed out she was from a town called Condob or her family was from Condobolin, and I knew exactly where that was. Oh, you're a Wadri woman, and that. So yeah, and then she, yeah, she just pretty much went from there, and now she's uh, pretty more popular than me, as much as I hate to admit it. <laughs> if she, if Kirsten's listening to this right now, she is like Mr. Uh, Burns right now and twinkling her fingers together. <laughs> but yes, uh, we have a very highly competitive relationship being Kirsten. So yeah, a, a good one. Yes. So that's kind of interesting. That's actually the opposite side of the argument I was trying to make. So rather than someone who's Aboriginal kind of being inspired to go into science, she was she was already in into it into the science and was inspired to learn more about her background exactly yeah so that's very cool um i think it just was uh, it was just good that i was there because i'm a very cultural man so i got lots of knowledge about traditional culture 
So, whereas a lot of people these days, they know they're Aboriginal, they're proud of it, but they don't know that much traditional knowledge. So, uh, it's up to people like me to be teaching that to the community and Aboriginal people. So, yeah. So, Dwayne. Dwayne. <laughs> so, given that you're in, you're actually in the academic system, are there things in place to try and encourage more students from these backgrounds to go into, maybe not specifically science, but into higher education at least? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, there are already a you know, humongous number of Aboriginal students going into university. We've been working for a few years on, well, for several years now, on recruiting Aboriginal students into astronomy, planetary and space sciences. When I began doing my PhD, we didn't know of any, anybody, any Aboriginal people who were professional astronomers or even had qualifications in that. They may be out there, we certainly didn't know, we were looking pretty hard. Uh, a couple years ago, in 2016, I met um, Carly Noon, who's a Gomeroy woman who was doing a double degree in physics and mathematics at Newcastle University. And we met up, and she was, you know, doing a lot of science communication stuff through there, uh, some things dealing with culture, and she got really excited about the Aboriginal astronomy research. Well, she's now so bloody famous, her, her face is on the sides of buses. You know, she was on <laughs> Stargazing Live with Brian Cox, and she's been doing oh, a lot wow. of that stuff. Um, I met uh, Kirsten Banks, and I met Willie, of course, and, you know, so... Even though Willie's on the university system, he's contributed. He's been part of our research group for several years. Um, you know, we're actually writing an academic paper where Willie's a co-author on that. So, Kirsten Banks has been involved, and uh, Crystal Dinopoli is a, a Gomeroy woman who lives in uh, Melbourne right now. She's at Monash University, where I am, doing astrophysics. So we've got this whole new generation of Aboriginal students coming in doing astrophysics, and Carly has told me there's other Aboriginal students doing physics at ANU I don't even know about. So we got this whole new generation coming in. So one of the things that I've been very adamant about is, you know, right now, when you, well, not right now, prior to about a year and a half ago, when you look up anything in Aboriginal astronomy, it was my ugly white mug <laughs> or a couple of colleagues who were also white fellows. And we thought, well, you know, there's a little bit of a problem here. How do we fix this, you know? So now we've got this whole generation of Aboriginal students coming into the space. So now it's passing, well, passing the torch, sort of, taking the position that we have to promote the students, to mentor them on the academic side of things, and just make sure that, you know, their faces are seen now whenever you talk about this. And now, of course, you know, my 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 uh, request to do things are starting to dwindle down. We've been passing them on to Carly, Kirsten, Willie, and Carly for a couple of years now. So I think Kirsten just did something on National Geographic. Carly did Stargazing Live. Uh, Crystal in Melbourne started to do some major stuff. Willie, you were on TV with some major film documentary in Europe a few years ago. You know, <laughs> these guys have been doing some amazing stuff now. So we've got a longer-term strategy of getting more students in, mentoring them, and ensuring not just that within our little group, but that the universities and the astronomy departments across the country are, are supportive of this. Mm -hmm. I will say that Brian Schmidt, the Nobel Prize-winning astrophysicist who's also the vice chancellor of ANU, Top, country's top university he brought Carly in and basically recruited her to come in so you know it's it's good to see the departments the astronomy departments are not only receptive to this they're actively approaching Aboriginal students and even Monash was sort of like we want to offer you scholarship we want to offer you support so it's not a situation where students are trying to call their way in it's yeah. now a point where the astronomy community is saying we want you to be part of this we want you here let's make this happen yeah and I think the, the problem with this kind of uh, positive discrimination, it's always seen as, well, you're doing this just to get the numbers up. But I, I think obviously this is, this is showing people that they already have the talent and the worth to be there. Well, this is the, this is the issue is people might think it's affirmative action, but if you've ever met any of these students, Carly, Crystal, or Kirsten, and seen their backgrounds, see their grades, their marks, these are not students who just barely passed, scraped by, and managed to get in. These are students who've done very well in their studies. You know, I just published a paper with Car uh, with... I've got Carla, <laughs> Kirstine, Crystal, Carly, and... Kirsten, Carla, Carly... Uh, Crystal, and Kirstine is another one. <laughs> 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 oh my god, anyway. You're discriminating for people who begin with a K. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> so, Kirsten and I just published a paper on planets in Aboriginal astronomy. Um, Crystal Dinopoli is working with Willie and I on publishing a paper looking at Murawari traditions. Uh, Carly and I are working on a book. I'm actually working on a book with all three of the students. The plan is to work on a book. But I've just put in a book proposal with Springer Press. So Carly and I are going to write a book on Aboriginal astronomy, more of an academic book. Uh, Crystal and I are going to write a community book. And Kirsten and I are going to write a popular book because of her interest in Psycom. And Willie, we'll find some, somebody to get you involved in all this. Um, so, like, you know, we're, do, we're doing things to really boost not only the, the, the face, uh, you know, of science communication, but also the academic research, the hardcore research they're getting involved in at all these stages. So it's not just something where there's an affirmative action that says, we want to get you in here. No, they've got the background. They've done the degrees. They've done an excellent job. They're in the research. They're getting published, you know, uh, Kirsten's now got an academic publication just before she finished her undergrad degree. Wow. That's know, so, crazy. Yeah, they're doing really well at this stuff. So this is not affirmative action anyway. These students are excelling, and academic departments are recognizing that and saying, yes, let's, let's get you in here and get you through the uh, honors, master's, PhD, the whole nine yards. I guess one thing that is going to have to happen after this is that... Um, once these people are in place, that they need this continued support. Like you say, it's not just a matter of, okay, well, you've done well at this and you've got to this position. I think everybody needs to ensure that, but this is for women in general, I think, not just people of a particular background. But um, yeah, this is where things start to fall flat is that we have the, the leaky pipeline, as everybody loves to call it, uh, which sounds like a very gross way of saying that women don't get the support they need to stick around. Man, we've got more women in this group than men now. So. Yeah, it used to be a bunch of old white dudes. Now there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of Aboriginal people and young Aboriginal women. I mean, you're right. That is something that I've been very adamant about is ensuring the students get support. And I'm trying to... I'm a white guy. I mean, I, I understand that I've got the most privileged position there is. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to learn about this stuff because it's not something that we as white no, males learn about. True. We don't know, you know. Um, and over the last few years, I've been learning more and more about this. So it seems kind of weird for me to sit here and try to talk with authority because I don't know anything <laughs> about this, seriously. you know. But I do understand the support mechanisms that need to be in place because of what I've been taught and what people have told me, what men have told me in this, in this space. So I try to make sure that we're offering that at the you know, me with the supervisory and mentor level, but also ensuring they get that at the departmental level, the institutional level, and the outreach public level as much as we can. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's something that we're really pushing to try to do in the right way. Yeah, no, and that sounds incredibly positive and it would be a great, I think that would make you a great role model for probably supervisors everywhere. I think one, it, it's, it might seem kind of weird, but I think for me, the, one of the biggest things I can do is step back step back they don't need that much of my help these these women are pretty bloody strong and amazing themselves they can do this without you know my help i'm i'm, I'm sitting here giving them the support they need and sort of giving them a little bit of direction and you know we about sort of the methodologies and the theoretical frameworks and stuff on the academic side but i just stepped back and they skyrocketed you know i didn't need to do much so that's been fantastic they, they've done a really amazing <laughs> job though me and uh, Kirsten did a, a, an Aboriginal astronomy talk uh, September last year uh, for an Aboriginal doctors conference. So it was all doctors and possibly nurses that were Aboriginal all over Australia. And there was like 300 of them. And um, when we were getting ready uh, a week or so before the conference or our talk, uh, Kirsten was just all about, let's sit down and let's make uh, this PowerPoint or presentation like 100% awesome and everything. So came over my house and we sat down at the kitchen table, just went through and created all this, all these cool slides and everything. Me, I would have been just chilled and laid back and I've got my own thing. I, I'm good and all that. Because and it's just boom, not, let's make it even better. Let's go. Let's make it stronger. And, and yeah, it was great. So it was 
if she didn't do it, I probably wouldn't have been as good as a presentation <laughs> as what I would have done. So, yeah. And now, now I'm calling up, hey, remember we did that presentation? Can I grab that picture from that we both did together? And uh, can I use that as well? And she's like, yeah, yeah, sure. So now I'm grabbing stuff of her to do some stuff. So she was getting it from me and now I'll get it from her. It's just, yeah. So, mm. I'm starting to wonder why I invited you two and not Kirsten. <laughs> I tried to get Kirsten, but she was already involved. So I had to go to Willie instead. <laughs> Oh. I, I'm the backup. Yeah. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I did want to get both these guys because they're both here in Sydney. Yeah. So I, I did. A, I did a ask her. But she said she's she's got a full on week. She's doing about a million things for Nadog. So no, I was glad Willie was able to come. Um, you know, she wasn't able to make it tonight, but you know, she wished she could. But uh, don't worry, Willie, you're not sick. so. I'm a better Yana, anyway. So <laughs> she might have the brains, but I got the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, on that note, I'd like to thank you both very much for joining us this evening. This is this is fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Send all hate mail to <laughs> Parliament House, Canberra. <laughs> if you heard anything on this program tonight that you don't like, especially from the, uh, the Yank, it's not my fault. When the darkness and shadows appear friends I could wrap you up in my embrace so back in about 2007 I believe it was I was teaching tutorials in physics at one of the universities here in Sydney it was a classroom environment, and I was teaching students how to solve problems. And at the time, I was a little bit overly gung-ho about, you know, discipline. So the students were sort of chatting amongst themselves, and I got a bit, you know, like, hey, you guys need to dunk that off. And I sort of sat up on top of the lectern bench. I was sort of going off on them a little bit. And to make my point, I sort of raised my hand, and I sat back a little bit, and I fell a meter flat on my back. Thump. And of course they started laughing and I started I was like, oh Jesus. Yeah, I deserve that. I was being a bit of a dick and Yeah, I totally deserve that. So I got up, I laughed it off. Everybody had had a bit of a roar and then we just went on. And I I stopped doing that. <laughs> that was a sign from above. <laughs> uh, this I don't have any embarrassing ones that are linked to my astronomy. I'm just that good. <laughs> I don't know. So, a few years ago, I was taking all of my research group, and we would go camping. So we went out way past Orange, and had a camp out, and it was like, I forget, it was like June or July, it was, it was, well, it was around June, it was around the solstice. We were going to watch the solstice sun rise over this particular mountain range called Seven Sisters Ridge. And Willie had swag, so for those of you who don't know what swag is, it's sort of like a big sleeping bag with padding in it that you can zip up over top of you. And <laughs> woke up in the morning, and it had frosted overnight. Uh, which is interesting because of Halaika rising the Pleiades, so the rising of the Pleiades early in the morning, just before sunrise, indicates frost and the start of winter. That was one of the things we were looking for, because the Pleiades rose the same time the sun rose, just a little bit before the sun rose. And I wake up, and I go out of the tent, and I look down, and I see this frozen pickle on the ground. <laughs> and Willie looks like one of these, I don't know, you ever seen the movie Troll from the 1980s? A really cheesy movie. <laughs> sort of go over and sort of kick it a bit. It's like, and it was completely covered in white frost and he like unzips it, like giving birth. He's like freezing half to death, like go away, go away. It was just the funniest damn thing I ever saw. As usual, folks, you can check the episode show notes for links to learn more about our speakers and their work. Just head to twoscientists.org. Thanks to Cooper's Hotel in Newtown for having us. 
fun fact for non-Aussies, a hotel in Australia is a pub, but it's also a hotel. This one was the former. Thanks also to local Sydney artist Thalia for gifting us the music for this recording. You can find the current track and more on her Bandcamp page. Come back next week to hear from the last guest we met during this trip, the lovely Dr. Karen Lamb. We'll catch you then. Don't believe me yet, cause you feel I've never been there But my love for you will never end And I've always been with you from the start And I know exactly what's in your heart All the heartache and pain and shame and blame You've never felt a wanting hand or the touch of love yeah, I could wrap you up in my embrace And heal you with my soul Cause I'm you're gonna edit this and it's like oh my god what have i said tonight that's gonna come off in the worst way possible from the oh, it's live, <laughs> this is live no it's no jeez don't say no, that no, dude i was like wait what